The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, folks. <laughs> Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team. <laughs> Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Show. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on The Tom Sumner Program. The 35th President of the United States, John F. Kennedy, had frequently demonstrated a quick and ready wit. But his audience at the 1962 White House Correspondents' Dinner was unprepared for the high humor he revealed that night. It was shortly after his now-famous clash with the steel industry, in which the industry had announced and then rescinded a steel price increase. I have a few opening announcements. (laughs) First, the sudden and arbitrary action of the officers of this organization in increasing the price of dinner tickets by two... $2.50 over last year constitutes a wholly unjustifiable defiance of the public interest. If this increase is not rescinded, but is imitated by the gridiron, radio, TV, and other dinners, it will have a serious impact on the entire economy of this city. In this serious hour in our nation's history, when newsmen are awakened in the middle of the night to be given a front-page story. (laughs) When expense accounts are being scrutinized by the Congress. When correspondents are required to leave their families for long and lonely weekends at Palm Beach. (laughs) The American people will find it hard to accept this ruthless decision 
made by a tiny handful of executives. <laughs> Whose only interest is the pursuit of pleasure. <laughs> I am hopeful that the Women's Press Club will not join this price rise and will thereby force a rescission. I'm uh, sure I speak in behalf of all of us in expressing our thanks and very best wishes to Benny Goodman and his group, Miss Gwen Verdon and Bob Foss, Miss Sally Ann Howes, Mr. Reed, who has some talent, but... Uh, <laughs> Mr. Peter Sellers. I, I have arranged for them to appear next week on the United States Steel Hour. <laughs> Actually, uh, I didn't do it. Bobby did it, but uh, we're going to... Like uh, members of Congress, I have been, during the last few days over the Easter holiday, back in touch with my constituents and uh, seeing how they felt. And frankly, I've come back to Washington from Palm Beach, and I'm against my entire program. I really feel that the only hope in 64 is to, uh, on the Republican ticket, is to nominate uh, Barry. But to be honest, I thought that before I went to Palm Beach. <laughs> we are glad to have the Prime Minister tonight. Last night he was the guest of the publishers, and again he is tonight. We want him to know... Uh... How welcome he is. Lord Dunsany, a distinguished Irishman, said many years ago... To fight England is to fight fate. And I choose to believe in 1962 to be associated with England in a great cause is to be associated with fate. Prime Minister, we are proud to have you here again. We are... I think I speak on his behalf in saying that after having been in the hands of 1,400 members of the press for over four hours, we haven't got a single complaint. Thank you. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, rolling into the third half of our three-hour tour, opening up this hour with a little bit of a hangover from uh, the, the previous hour, where we talked with uh, author Fred Litwin about his uh, book, On the Trail of Delusion, which uh, is a compelling new book debunking JFK conspiracy theories. Seemed kind of appropriate to hear a little bit. That was actually John F. Kennedy in the comedy spotlight um, by way of uh, Chet Huntley, who had put together a collection of politicos from back in the uh, early 60s and and um, tried to demonstrate humor as uh, part of the political discussion of the day. And uh, what a great job he did, and we refer to it from time to time anyway coming up this hour we're going to shift gears and we're going to go uh, uh, into a different part of history where we uh, talk with author michael walsh about his new book last stands why men fight when all is lost interesting uh, that he would uh, take this interest since he's also the uh, former classical music critic for time magazine Anyway, very interesting uh, conversation coming up as we um, roll into the third half of our three-hour tour here on the Tom Sumner Program. Normally on Fridays I like to have musical guests, and I suppose it's kind of a stretch to consider uh, Michael Walsh, former classical music critic for Time Magazine, as a musical guest. But I am reaching out, and we will start having musicians on Fridays again. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour was the classical music critic and foreign correspondent for Time magazine, uh, for which he covered the end of the Cold War from Berlin and Moscow. He has since written uh, several books, but we're going to talk about his latest book, which is dedicated to Last Stands. That is the title of the book, Why Men Fight When All is Lost, by Michael Walsh, who joins me now by phone. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, why the, the fascination with uh, Last Stands? Does that have anything to do with the time you spent in Berlin and Moscow? Uh, yeah, well, it, it, indirectly, I suppose. I, I've, I've always been, I grew up in a military family in the Marine Corps, and my father, uh, as I write in Last Stands, uh, a whole chapter about it, uh, fought at the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir in Korea in 1950, which was practically a last stand for not only the Marines uh, of, of the 2-5, the, the group he was in, but the, uh, the whole Marine Corps. So having grown up with this, I guess it's been in the back of my head for a long time, and and now here it is. The events that you write about in Last Stands, what is it that that made them be selected for inclusion in this book? What what were the elements that they had in common? Uh, well, there's you know there's been plenty of Last Stands throughout history, and the ones that where the losing side got completely eradicated and and lost the war and disappeared from history. We don't know so much about them. That's just a goes down as a defeat uh, yeah, in the uh, in the winner's column, getting rid of an, an opponent. But I've always been interested in not only just the military aspects of these selected battles, 
but in the cultural ramifications. As you noted in your intro, uh, I was a cultural critic for Time magazine, among other things, for, for many, many years, 25 years, actually, 16 of them at Time. So the cultural aspects of all these battles were really interesting to me, too. And by that, I mean the circumstances of the battle, the historical background, uh, what uh, afterlife they've had in the popular culture, poems, movies, plays, songs, uh, all of the, the, the echoing ramifications of the fights. That said, I picked the battles I thought were the most interesting to write about. So any writer basically does that. He makes an arbitrary, in some senses, cut uh, to have a book that's uh, manageable for one thing and can be written in a relatively uh, a compact uh, time frame. So, so we go from the Greeks to the to the Marines. That's that's the uh, that's the extent of the historical sweep for this book. Well, that's that's a pretty long arc. It is. Yeah, three. <laughs> um, in these these particular uh, battles where. Um, essentially, the the losers were wiped out. Um, did they know that going in? Were they surprised by what they faced, or did they know the odds and face it anyway? Well, I think it depends. So, so the Greeks at Thermopylae, uh, I suspect the Spartans, the famous 300, and there was a movie about that about, what, about 10 years ago, um, they knew that they were probably weren't coming back, given the overwhelming numbers of the Persians that were invading uh, that part of Greece. Uh, on the other hand, most of these battles turn out to be accidental. Uh, Custer's Last Stand, which is probably the most famous to American readers, uh, was a blunder in the sense that Custer didn't know the uh, number of Indian warriors gathered on the other side of the river there. Uh, he had no idea until he encountered them, and he had split his forces, as he always did during his days, uh, not only as a Indian fighter but as a Civil War commander, uh, and he got caught, obviously, way short. So that was a surprise to them. That battle was over very quickly, and all of Custer's immediate command got wiped out. On the other hand, the 7th Cavalry and the United States eventually won that war. That was one of the last battles in the Indian Wars. So... Uh, Sometimes the side loses and gets beat or gets wiped out. But another thread throughout Last Stance is that the side that lost ultimately wins the war in, in most of the cases. The subtitle uh, of the book, Why Do Men Fight When All Is Lost? Um, why do they fight when all is lost? Or is it a matter of, of just trying to hold ground? As in the case of the Alamo, for I example. think the... Uh, uh, yeah, well, the Alamo, they were fighting for, for Tex, what they called Texian <clears throat> independence at that time. Um, that's the first chapter of the book. It's called To Die For, and it's a philosophical examination of what it is that makes men fight. And I mean men. This is a, a book about men, not women. Um, my next book will be about women, so the ladies will have <clears throat> equal time. But what you discover on reading the primary sources or in my case, even interviewing my then 92-year-old father, he's now 94, uh, you find out that they fight for each other. That's it. Uh, the larger issues are duty, honor, country, unit pride, personal self-defense, etc. But in, in the end, it's all about how do I protect my buddy because that's the only way we're getting out of this alive. 
More with award-winning author Michael Walsh, straight ahead. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling authors, photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. I know this is a really hard time for everyone. We're facing a killer virus, economic pain, and all the frustrations of being cooped up at home. Believe me, I have two teenagers to deal with. But the worst thing we can do is let up now, triggering a second coronavirus wave that causes more death and economic chaos. What you're doing is working. You're saving lives. So let's all hang in there and please stay home and stay safe. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Tom Sumner. 
TomSumnerProgram.com The Tom Sumner Program.com Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to Tom Sumner Program. More with award-winning author Michael Walsh, straight ahead. The the other things that that people list, you know, honor and country and, and all of those things, are kind of abstract when 4,000 Mexican soldiers are coming down on you. Yeah, that's true, and that's what's also true of the Romans at Cannae against Hannibal. Uh, Roland uh, at, at the Roncevalles Pass, uh, when he was defending the rear guard of Charlemagne's army, um, generally these battles, they're never planned. No one plans the last stand. Uh, they suddenly emerge, and then you find out what the men in the unit are made of. You know, you brought up that this is... Um you know, that this book focuses on men in these uh, situations, and and you talk about some traditional masculine attributes. Um, are these um, put-it-all-on-the-line kinds of battles a, a, a strictly male phenomenon? Yes, because... Uh up until extremely recently, women don't fight in the front lines. So it's really that simple. It's not a matter of sexism. It's a matter of, uh, of, of cultural development and physical reality. So that's why the subtitle the book is Why Men Fight When All Is Lost. The, um, something I was wondering about, Michael, and I don't, I don't know if you've given this any thought, but our... Uh, are these kinds of of epic uh, um, battles um, where all is lost? Are they still possible in this age of drones and uh, technology? Yes, I did uh, consider that uh, in, the, in the text of this book as well. I believe they are, uh, because even if you were to go to say full-scale nuclear war, there's going to be some survivors, and they're going to continue to fight. So in the end, despite all of the technological advances in the art of killing and in the art of war, uh, it comes down to the individual soldier, the individual infantry soldier who is going to fight with whatever weapons he has, possibly she in the future. But uh, I would guess if history is any guide, uh, many, many fewer women in that position um, they're going to fight till the end. So the Romans at Cannae, for example, were surrounded, got surrounded by Hannibal, even though Hannibal had a smaller army. And they were trapped in, in, in a pincers movement that they couldn't get out of. But as Livy, the early Roman historian, says, uh, they found a Roman soldier lying face down in the mud of the battlefield uh, with uh, one of his opponents' nose between his teeth. So they really do fight to the end with whatever weapons come to hand. Wow. Um, can you describe what a what a last stand is and and how it how last stands got on your radar to the point that you thought there should be a book about it? Uh, 
me ask two, two separate questions. As I, as yeah. I mentioned, I've, I've been interested in military affairs since I was a kid. Uh, it's not a path I chose for myself in terms of my career, but it's certainly something that's always interested me. Uh, yeah, but it, but Michael, it seems like Tom, I'm sorry, I'm well, it there. it seems like we would you know typically be attracted to the victors in battle. Um, why why the uh, the whole idea of uh, mm-hmm. last stand? Yeah. Well, well, as I mentioned, in most of these cases, they are the victors. They just happen to lose that particular tactical engagement. So. Uh, as I mentioned, Custer uh, lost his immediate command, not not the whole 7th Cavalry that was with him, but just a couple hundred guys that were with him on this particular salient. Uh, but the army uh, won the war. Uh, the Romans uh, were crushed at Kame. They lost 50,000 men, maybe 75,000 men. We're not sure. Uh, all of them killed on one day with swords. So you can imagine what a gruesome battlefield that must have been. But in the end, they expelled Hannibal from Italy, and they chased him back to Carthage, and they destroyed Carthage in the Third Punic War, and that was the end of Carthage completely. Uh, Plus, this well, the reason why I wrote this book is it's not really ever been done before, and I was surprised uh, as it began to to rattle around in my head that there was no previous book just devoted to this particular phenomenon. So uh, luckily, that uh, Last Dance has found a market. It sold out on day one at Amazon and many other places, and we're We've done lots of reprints, and now the book is available uh, widely again, which I'm very pleased to say. Uh, yeah, this is uh, kind of a weird time to to have a book coming out, Michael, with the pandemic and and all. Has it been a different experience than uh, when when your other books have come out? Uh, the pandemic is sort of a secondary, uh, in one sense, is that people can get books online now. You can read them on Kindle. You can get them sent to you by Amazon. Sure. Uh, and other booksellers, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, uh, Walmart. Um, and, and they're all available now. I think that this experience has been new only in the sense that the first printing sold out so quickly, which told me that there was a great hunger for a book, not only on this particular subject, but on the larger subject of of masculinity and masculinity is under great threat right now, as you know, from the, the woke culture and third wave feminism. And I thought it was about time somebody stood up for it. Is, is that part of the message of the book is, uh, um, sort of, uh, a hat tip to chivalry. Yes. It's not so much chivalry. I mean, in the sense of, you know, medieval knights or anything, but it's, it's the fundamental relationship between men and women, which really hasn't changed, except in the last 10 years where uh, it seems to me the third wave feminists are arguing a complete counterfactual that starting with the most obvious fallacy that women and men are the are equal in physical strength, which they're not, or stamina or many other physical attributes over which we have no control and therefore is not some kind of conspiracy against women but is a reflection of the physical reality now not to say there shouldn't be women in the in the armed forces there always have been uh there certainly were during the second world war uh we all remember the the wax and the waves in the, in the women's army corps and uh, units like that but only recently have we decided that we should put uh 110 pound females on the front line of a hot zone uh, so this book is an argument in effect against that, but only because history tells us that is not an effective use of 
either men or women. How important is brute strength in uh, warfare? Well, it's pretty much the essence of it. Uh, the Romans, for example, <clears throat> the Romans, for example, were uh, intimidated by the Germans because the Germans were so much bigger than the Romans. Uh, and they had to learn how to compensate for that, which they did through organization, discipline, technological skill, uh, superior logistics, etc. But there's no question that on the battlefield, when the Germans or even the Celts, the Gauls in, in France, um, were on them one-on-one, -on -one, the Roman soldier was at a tremendous disadvantage except for his tactics, training, and his armor. Uh, when the Romans were slaughtered uh, at the Teutoburg Forest uh, in Germany in the first century A.D., early the first decade of A.D., um, the brutality that the Germans inflicted on them because they had ambushed them in a, kind of in a, like an Indian ambush in, in the United States, you know, thousand years later, um, they had no way to stop them. They were just too big and too strong. The disadvantage that both the Gauls and the Germans had was they were militarily disorganized and tended to run if the Romans got the upper hand in a, in a battle, which is how Caesar was able to conquer Gaul. But yeah, physical size is hugely important. I mean, you are not going to have a 110-pound girl be able to overwhelm a 250-pound man, especially armed with the, whatever the current weaponry is. It's just uh, not going to happen. How much did preparation or lack of preparation go into these defeats? In what sense? Well, like, for example, um, I'll just grab the one that I'm most familiar with, which is the uh, the Alamo. You had 183 guys. They're, you know, they're they're trying to hold down a fort. Um, did did they have a plan, or did they just stand up to an attack that that uh, um, came up somewhat suddenly? Well, you know, the Alamo is a complex one. It's, a, it's an interesting chapter in the book. Uh, I, I twinned it with the French Foreign Legion battle at Camarone in Mexico uh, because both both of them were obviously located in that part of the world. The the Texians, very most often forgotten is the following fact that yes, it was Mexican territory at the time. Although uh, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, to California, um, that was all part of New Spain. But the Spanish who were not colonizers, they were exploiters, and that's the difference between North America and South America. Uh, they had not put settlers into that territory, and their military guys were not able to fight the Comanches and other Indian warrior nations very effectively. So in effect, they didn't control the territory at all. And what they did was ask the Yankees, the, the Americans, to come in and settle around what's now San Antonio. If you've been to Texas and you drive down to San Antonio, you will, for example, see German names and place names everywhere. And that's partly because later, after the Alamo, the Germans fleeing a famine in the Rhineland uh, came to America in the, in the hundreds of thousands and settled that part of Texas. So it's a, just an interesting historical sidelight. Uh, but the Americans were there at the invitation of the Mexican government. 
and finally the uh, Mexican government under Santa Ana, who was not only the general at the Alamo but the president of Mexico, uh, decided they needed to force the Americans out. They were, they were too successful. There were too many of them. So this was an illegal immigration uh, battle with the shoes on the other foot. Uh, and the Texians, as they called themselves, decided to stand and fight. They had famous uh, frontiersmen like Davy Crockett came. Uh, they sent out a call for volunteers, and a lot of people came from Tennessee, men, uh, you know, a handful of men, but certainly augmented the garrison from Tennessee and elsewhere. And uh, Colonel Travis was a military man, and they organized a very skillful defense of the Alamo. They just were overwhelmed because there were far too many besiegers than they had meant to fight. In in the the stories that you looked at, um, was was that kind of unique to the Alamo that call for volunteers? Well, each battle is different historically, and most of these last stands turn out to be spontaneous, as we as we discussed earlier. So, uh, yes, in that sense, yes, uh, it's tough to get reinforcements in uh, when you're in the middle of one of these things. Custer tried it. Uh, was famously he once he engaged the Indians that as I said his his seventh cavalry was split into three uh, three separate units one under him one under uh, uh, Major Reno and one under Colonel Benteen he sent a desperate message uh, once he saw the size of the Indian village before they started fighting in his separate battle so they were about, about a mile or two apart all these different aspects of uh, Little Bighorn. But he sent a desperate message back to Benteen, who despised him, as, as did Reno. So he had two uh, uh, subordinate officers who were not particularly on the team. Uh, said, uh, hurry, come quick, uh, big village, bring packs, which means bring ammunition. The, the ammunition was carried on uh, mule trains. Uh, but that message got there too late, and Custer was, the Custer battle was over within half an hour. Had, um Michael, this is kind of a little bit off topic, but how do you go from writing about culture and classical music to writing about battles and and uh, last stands and enemies well, and I heroes? Well, I think every writer has certain areas that. Yeah, uh, as a, as a novelist, I've written six novels. Three of them are set uh, in my uh, semi. A fictional character called Devlin, who is an operative of the National Security Agency. So these are all international thrillers. Uh, one of them is the first-person uh, uh, fictional memoirs of a very famous Irish-American gangster who lived in New York City in the first uh, tw 20 years of the 20th century, uh, famous Oni Madden, who owned the Cotton Club. So I let him write his whole life story. Uh, what else have I done? I did a a police thriller, my first novel set in New York among a very, very violent underworld. So that's always been an aspect of my work as well, the thrillers. I'm very concerned with characters uh, in need of redemption and uh, trying to figure out exactly what their destiny is. Uh, as a cultural critic, I've obviously I've written books about uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber, the famous uh, uh, musical composer who I've known for you know, many yeah. decades. Um, who else? Uh, classical music book and books on opera and most recently I did two cultural criticism books called The Devil's Pleasure Palace and The Fiery Angel they're, they're twins and it's about the uh, notion of good and evil God and Satan um, all, all sorts of uh, 
a theological and philosophical subject. So, you know, you're, you, every person is an individual, and you have certain interests, and, and you try to follow uh, and be effective in whatever you want to write about. How, how much did, did uh, um, some of these uh, historic battles um, influence classical music? No, not particularly. I don't think they, they don't have anything to do with each other other than, you know, there was art, art being created. Let's say take Rome in 1527 at the height of the uh, Italian Renaissance. You had the then famous and now completely forgotten sack of Rome, which was a religious war between the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, Rome was just about destroyed. It, people forget that, uh, you know, what you see of Rome today with the Colosseum and some of the great uh, buildings left over from the Roman Empire or even the Roman Republic. Um, that was pretty much intact until the 16th century when this uh, the new religion of Lutheranism, Protestant, the Protestant Revolution, uh, fought a pitched battle against the, the papal states and the Pope in Rome. And the sack of Rome was absolutely horrific at the, the amount of destruction. And uh, I go into it in... in uh, rather frightening detail based on first-person eyewitness accounts of it. Um, it was really stunning. So that was the end of the Italian Renaissance, effectively. Uh, the Renaissance action, shall we say, moved north to Germany and France and Italy. I, but I'm does just... anyone write about it? Yeah, Max Bruch, the, the famous German composer, wrote a whole oratorio called Arminius, which is, is the Latin word for Hermann or Hermann in German, who was the German uh, commander who just destroyed the Romans at the Teutoburg Forest. But it's pretty rare. Well, I, you know, the 1812 overture comes to mind, and, and there have been, uh, I, I, I've always kind of believed that, that classical music reflected the, the changes in um, culture and politics and, and war of, of the time they were being written. Yeah, well, that's true. For example, uh, the 1812 Overture was kind of a patriotic thing because it celebrates the defeat of Napoleon uh, at, at, at Moscow. Um, the most famous example of this is uh, Beethoven dedicating the Third Symphony, the Eroica Symphony, uh, to Napoleon. Uh, at, at a time uh, when Napoleon was conquering Europe, by the way, and later on Napoleon attacked Vienna while Beethoven was living there. But at that point, Napoleon seemed like a kind of uh, popular hero, so he dedicated the Third Symphony, which is this great groundbreaking work of art, to Napoleon. But when Napoleon crowned himself Holy Roman Emperor, which he did by taking the crown out of the Pope's hands and putting it on his own head, uh, Beethoven tore up the dedication and changed it to uh, the memory of a great man by whom he met Napoleon. I, I just thought if anybody could uh, uh, could could connect those dots for me, it would be you. <laughs> um, there you go. That's that's the best I can do. Well, and but but again, it it kind of reinforces my belief that that uh, you know advances in in uh, uh, culture. And and music somewhat have gone hand in hand was was really my my yeah. point. Well, artists always reflect the times. The artists always reflect the times they live in, whether explicitly or indirectly. I mean, 
I, I caution people during my years as a, as a music scholar or critic uh, that just because the guy's miserable doesn't mean he doesn't write happy music. Uh, it, <laughs> those two rarely connect. In fact, some, sometimes it might be the reason for writing happy music. Yeah, well, it just it doesn't necessarily reflect the emotional state of the of the man. Now, you get to Tchaikovsky, for example, the last symphony, the Pathetic Symphony, is extremely sad, uh, and and he died shortly thereafter. So, was there some connection there? Well, I don't know. Tchaikovsky had a very complex uh, emotional life. Well, Michael, I, I'm really enjoying this conversation with you, and and this is a fascinating idea for a book, and and. I'm glad that it's going well and, and selling well. Um, and, and I'm curious about, uh, the, uh, about how you will manage equal time for women. Uh, so am I. <laughs> I haven't started this book yet. I just know that that's, 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 the, uh, that's the, uh, the idea that I have. Actually, I have a, a few ideas rattling around in my head. The book on women is one of them, and... Uh, Another book having to do with the uh, 12th century uh, is another. So I'm basically right now buried in Greek and Latin texts from the 12th century to help me research. Well, let me, uh, we're just about out of time, Michael. Um, But I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website, Michael? No, I don't. Um, I don't have a website. I'm not on Twitter since I was kicked off Twitter uh, in the conservative purge, which is still ongoing. As you know, the president has been <laughs> deplatformed. Uh, lots of prominent conservative thinkers have been deplatformed. And I was one of the first. They got, they got me back in uh, August. So I have, I have yet to have an explanation. So Twitter, if you're listening, goodbye. <laughs> and good riddance. They can't find... They can find me on Facebook, however. So look for look for the cover of the book, Last Stands. If you're looking, there's many people named Michael Walsh, but if uh, if you're looking up uh, my name, you'll see the cover of the book there on Facebook, and I communicate with my my readers uh, very effectively on Facebook. Well, Michael, thanks for spending this time with me this morning. I appreciate it very much, and uh, best of luck with well, thank this you, Tom. and everything going forward. Thank you very much. Take care. Well, uh, best to all the people in Flint, uh, and thanks so much. Take care. That was uh, Michael Walsh. He is the former classical music critic for Time magazine. He received the 2004 American Book Awards Prize for Fiction for his gangster novel and All the Saints back in 2004. Um, His uh, uh, popular columns for National Review, written under the pseudonym David Kahani were uh, developed into the book Rules for Radical Conservatives. And uh, his newest uh, his newest book, or the book that we were talking about, is called Last Stands, Why Men Fight When All is Lost. And we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Old-fashioned radio For a new Generation Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com 
This is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now, and now too, and even now. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. If you are sick with COVID-19 or think you might have it, take steps to help protect other people from getting sick. Stay home except to get medical care. Call the doctor before visiting. Separate yourself from others who live with you. Wear a mask to protect others. Cover your coughs and sneezes with a tissue and clean your hands right away. Avoid sharing items with other people in your home. This includes things like towels and bedding. Be sure dishes are washed in hot water or the dishwasher before anyone else uses them. 
stay aware of how you feel. If you start to have difficulty breathing, or if you're worried about your health, call your doctor. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. All the Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. All right, all right. All right, you people, settle down. Here's your drill instructor to welcome you to Paris Island. Here is Sergeant Jimenez. Okay. (laughs) Here is Sergeant Jimenez. And I want to welcome all you no-good, stupid-headed knuckleheads to Paris Island. And that's the last kind words you'll hear from me. (laughs) Now, I'm going to let you guys know what's going to happen here. I'm going to take you and I will work you until you drop. And then I will work you some more. You are nothing now. You are just a bunch of spineless Hey, bitches! <laughs> I'm going to treat you rough, and you'll get no pity from me. You're in the Marines now. Are there any questions? Sergeant. What, darling? <laughs> There'll be no questions. If you got any questions, I'll give them to you. All right, we're going into training today. I will take you out, and you will crawl a hundred yards through the mud under the barbed wire with a machine gun bullet shooting over your heads. <laughs> you will go to the fields filled with the boiling oil for another hundred yards, and after that, we'll start training. <laughs> now, during your training, we will observe the buddy system. Each of you will have a buddy. Stay close to your buddy because your buddy depends on you and you depend on your buddy. You have to swim, stay close to your buddy and he will help you. If you are under fire, stay close to your buddy and he will save you. And if you get wounded, your buddy will kiss it and make it well. (laughs) Any questions? Shut up, darling. I may be tough on you, man, but I'm going to give you a knowledge of everything I know, and I'm going to make tigers out of you, right? Right! Don't answer right. I'm going to make tigers out of you, so you got to roar. Now, roar! Come on, roar like a tiger! Roar again! Sergeant! What, pussycat? (laughs) Now I settle down out there. Yes, man, I may be rough on you and tough on you, but someday, someday you will walk up to me and you will say, thank you. And I will say, you're welcome. (laughs) 
Okay, one final word. There's only room for one sergeant in this outfit, understand? Now, if anybody here thinks that they can be the sergeant, let's hear from them now. Has anybody got something to say? Yeah, I got something to say. What did you want to say, sergeant? <laughs> This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. One thing about this world, you can't depend on anything. The leaders that we follow, they can't even write their name But here we are in America, ain't it just a shame how it goes on and on Our children going hungry, teens are turn to crime And politicians know it's true, but they ain't got no time Now here we are in America, nothing seems to change, it just goes on and on
it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner program. In fact, it wraps it up for the week. I hope you all have a great weekend. I want to say thanks to all my guests on the show today, starting with uh, Michael Walsh, award-winning author of a new book called Last Stands, Why Men Fight When All is Lost. Before that, uh, (laughs) a really fun conversation with um, Fred Litwin from his book, uh, which is... um, a must-read for all history buffs and uh, other, uh, well, and people who are fascinated by the JFK assassination and subsequent conspiracy theories. This book seeks to uh, debunk them all, and claiming there was only one gunman. The book is uh, called uh, let me see, "On the Trail of Delusion." And it takes aim at uh, New Orleans prosecutor Jim Garrison and uh, also filmmaker Oliver Stone. Before that, in the first hour of our show, we talked with um, an associate professor from uh, Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia and director of the Adult Cystic Fibrosis Center there about his book um, called Breathtaking, The Power, Fragility, and future of our extraordinary lungs. So, uh, thank you, Michael J. Stephen, MD, for uh, opening up the show today. Anyway, as I mentioned, that wraps it up uh, for today's edition. You can hear Smoking George Winters uh, tickling the ivories, letting me know it's time to head on down the hallway to the living room for the weekend. But I'll be back Monday with another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. So have a great weekend, and good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.